Well, John Robinson, who was the pastor of the Pilgrims prior to their voyage to America, once referred to envy as a canker worm that is injurious to both God and men. And in referring to envy as a canker worm, Robinson was utilizing imagery that was common both to his day and the Bible that he read. The canker worm, what we would call an inchworm or a looper or a span worm, was known for its destructive power and its ability, even though a very tiny creature, to decimate trees thousands of times larger than itself. And the Geneva Bible, which predated the King James Version, uh, was a Bible that Robinson no doubt read. And in Joel 1.4, for example, it talks about the canker worm and it says, That which is left of the palmer worm hath the grasshopper eaten, and the residue of the grasshopper hath the canker worm eaten, and the residue of the canker worm hath the caterpillar eaten. So canker worms were known for their destructive power, for consuming their host while remaining hidden from view. An entire tree could be destroyed, and by looking at it, you'd never see the canker worm. A small, tiny thing that can cause immense damage. That is how John Robinson, pastor of the pilgrims, viewed envy. And that is how we should view this most injurious sin as well. So there's no question that the Bible is replete with warnings against envy. And uh, we're going to consider several of those verses this morning. And the place I want us to start is Proverbs 14, verse 30. And there we read that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Now, all sin by its very nature is destructive to the sinner. It's not without reason that the scripture says in Proverbs 8 that he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. That's Proverbs 8.36. So all sin will cause harm to the sinner, not to mention those around them. Nevertheless, it does seem in considering sins that there are some that are more self-destructive than others. In envy is one of those sins. It will make your bones rot in the language of Scripture. It will, to borrow the language from Job chapter 5, slay you. Envy will slay you. It will, like a destructive worm or parasite, consume you little by little until you waste away. Again, in the words of Robinson, envy will punish and torment, with no small torment, him in whom it beareth sway consuming his heart as rust doth the iron whereon it groweth and rotting his very bones while he liveth. It's reported that John Chrysostom said that as a moth gnaws a garment, so does envy consume a man. And Matthew Henry wrote that a fretful, envious, discontented spirit is its own punishment. It consumes the flesh, preys upon the animal spirits, makes the countenance pale, and is the rottenness of bones. So, we would do well to consider our ways and consider our hearts this morning in order to avoid the canker worm of envy. So, we will consider envy first. We'll define it, and then we'll consider three ways it appears. Number one, the Christian envying the wicked. 
the Christian, number two, the Christian envying other Christians, and number three, the wicked envying the Christian. And then we'll conclude with some application. So first we'll define it, and then we'll look at the Christian envying the wicked, the Christian envying other Christians, and the wicked envying the Christians. So first of all, what is envy? Noah Webster in 1828 said that it is to feel uneasiness, mortification, or discontent at the sight of superior excellence, reputation, or happiness enjoyed by another, to repine at another's prosperity, to fret or grieve oneself at the real or supposed superiority of another, and to hate him on that account. Robinson simply called it a grief conceived at the good of another, especially by him that wants it in himself. So it is essentially coveting that which another has, whether that be success, fame, money, possessions, intelligence, opportunities in life, friends, family, physical beauty, life experiences, spouse, children, and on and on the list goes. Now, not only does God's word in general condemn the sin of envy, but the Tenth Commandment especially deals with envy. The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, is a command to put envy to death. In commenting on that commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism asks this question, what are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer is this, the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. So, in thinking about what is envy, the first thing we need to be clear about in defining it is that we can be certain that envy is a sin. It is a violation of God's law word. The Apostle Paul lists envy as one of the results of being given over to a debased mind. In Romans chapter 1, which we read last week, the Apostle Paul says, and since they, referring to fallen mankind, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So everything that follows are those things which ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, the Apostle Paul says, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. The list goes on. They're haters of God. They're inventors of evil, disobedience of parents. Such is the company the sin of envy keeps in Scripture. Now, as I mentioned, envy is being grieved that others have some good and we don't have it. It is to be both discontented with our own state and desirous that providence has given us that which he has chosen to give another. Envy is closely related to jealousy, whereas envy can be described as inordinately wanting something that another has. Jealousy is the fear of losing what you do have to another. But in many ways, they are two sides to the same coin. You think through scripture, you think of Genesis chapter 4. Cain is angry because God regards Abel's offering and not his, and envy causes his face to fall, his countenance falls, and of course he goes on to murder his brother. You think of Joseph's brothers and how they were envious and jealous of him, 
and these act, these thoughts, these emotions led to deplorable actions on their parts, on their part, selling their brother into slavery. King Saul was envious of David and led to a rottenness in his bones that colored the rest of his life. And of course, the Pharisees envied the Lord Jesus, which led them to commit the greatest sin, to be involved in the greatest sin, the death of the innocent, righteous Son of God. So this sin of envy is common in Scripture, and it is common in our own experience as well. However, Robinson points out that few men will own this sin, right? We may readily admit, men will readily admit that they hate, fear, or scorn others, but not so readily that they envy another. Because then you're essentially saying this person is superior or better off than me. We're prone to not admit envy. But we need to consider it and we need to put it to death because it is destructive to our soul. So we have briefly defined envy. And now we need to consider three ways that this sin is manifested among the two groups of people in the world. As we talked about in the past, there are only two groups of people. There's two types of people in the world. The righteous, who are righteous not by their own inherent goodness, but by the grace of God and the work of Christ. And the wicked, those who have not come to faith in Christ by the grace of God. So let's consider how envy is experienced between these groups. Number one, Christians envying the wicked. Christians envying the wicked. Now Martin Luther said that too many Christians envy the sinners their pleasure and the saints their joy because they don't have either one. Now, in envying sinners, we are revealing that we are not taking pleasure in Christ who is the greatest treasure a person could have. But we are clearly prone to envy the wicked, at least on certain occasions, even though we shouldn't. But we are prone to it. And as such, the scripture warns us in Proverbs 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners. We are prone to do this. And God tells us, let not your heart envy sinners. Now, why would a Christian desire that which the wicked have why would a christian envy the wicked i can think of at least three reasons number one the wicked are often allowed to prosper for a time they're allowed to prosper for a time the psalmist in psalm 73 which we read says that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of of the wicked. He looks around and sees that those who are not faithful to God, that are not following his word, are being blessed in a temporal sense. They're prospering. In God's providence, the wicked are often allowed to prosper in this world. It is a fact. While many godly men and women suffer. Now, we may envy the wicked for their prosperity then, the blessings they enjoy in this life. Number two, and closely related to that, we may envy the wicked not only for their prosperity, but for the seeming ease with which they go through life. Again, from Psalm 73, which we read in verse 5, he says, They, referring to the wicked, are not in trouble as others are. But the Christian, of course, if you know your New Testament, has been promised trouble. We have it both from the Apostle Paul and the Lord himself. The apostle tells us that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus put it as clear as it could be. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, the trouble includes waging war against sin, resisting temptation, opposing spiritual forces of darkness, which I don't think any of us fully understand the the amount of trouble that we experience because we are in Christ and the forces of darkness and the world are opposed to us. All these things, all these troubles are foreign to the wicked. They cannot know them. They will not know them unless they come to Christ. They may experience troubles that are common to humanity, sickness and death, but they cannot experience the spiritual troubles that a Christian does. And thus we may envy the wicked for their ease, for the fact that they don't experience the trouble that the righteous do. And a third reason why we may envy the wicked is that we may full-heartedly, full-heartedly envy the wicked for their enjoyment of the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Bible does say that sin is pleasurable for a season. Now, as the child of God matures, he or she becomes more and more averse to these fleeting pleasures, coming rather to continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. But there is the potential that we are tempted to envy the wicked because they enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, as Christians, we do sometimes have a tendency to expect that God would give us certain blessings on earth as due payment, if you will, for our faithfulness. But this is not the way we should think. We are to do our duty out of love for God and love for his law word, not to be rewarded, especially on this earth. Now, I grant, and I'll talk about it in a moment, obedience to God his law, obedience to his word, it always leads to blessing. However, sometimes those blessings are deferred. Sometimes obedience to God, faith in his word, and by grace walking in obedience to it leads to blessings, even on earth, even temporal blessings. But sometimes it doesn't lead to blessings on this earth and they won't fully be realized until eternity. But the, it always leads to blessing when you obey God's word. But sometimes those blessings are deferred. For example, the Apostle Paul, he didn't enjoy the temporal blessings that some people enjoyed. He was persecuted, eventually martyred for his faith. But his reward was far greater than that which could have been granted on earth. The English martyrs, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, who we just read about for family worship the other night, they didn't enjoy the temporal blessings that some saints enjoy. They were burned at the stake for their faith. But they didn't envy the sinners who were spared those temporal flames, as they knew that such sinners, apart from Christ, were awaiting eternal flames of far greater danger. So the answer to the Christian's problem of envying the wicked is to reorient our perspective and take the long view. And that's what the psalmist did when he said, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. When he understood the fate of the wicked, he could not possibly have envy for them, but only pity and a desire that they would turn from their sin. So let us not envy the wicked, but rather be merciful, have pity upon them, and pray that they would not abuse the blessings that God has given them to their own hurt and destruction. 
We are not only tempted, however, to envy the wicked. We, as Christians, we can be tempted to envy other Christians. And in some ways, it, it might be easier to overcome the temptation to envy the wicked, but it's a more difficult thing to overcome the temptation to envy another Christian. The Tenth Commandment, however, doesn't just apply to our non-Christian neighbors, but also to our Christian neighbors. Now, we may understand that in God's plan, he would allow the righteous to suffer while the wicked prosper. But why would he allow one Christian, perhaps one that's even more zealous and faithful than another, to suffer or not be blessed as much as another Christian? Why does that Christian couple get to have children and we do not? Why does that Christian get to have that kind of job and I do not? Why does that Christian get to have that home and I do not? Why does that Christian get to have that experience and I do not? Why has God blessed that Christian in that way and has not blessed me in that way? Have I not been faithful? Have I not tried even harder than perhaps others in my mind to follow God's word and walk in his way? Why am I not being blessed and those Christians are It is a real temptation. The Apostle Paul urges Christians to refrain from envying other Christians when he says, the end of Galatians 5, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We know this is a common temptation to believers, but the Apostle Paul warns us against it. Now, if we envy another child of God, we have a conceited and inflated view of ourselves, and we've forgotten that we are only doing our duty as Christians. We have forgotten that we don't deserve any good thing, and therefore we certainly don't deserve more good things than what God has already given us. We've forgotten, perhaps, that God is allowed to do what he chooses with that which belongs to him. Turn to Matthew 20, and this parable is very practical to this point. In Matthew 20, the Lord tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And he, he tells of the, the manager who hires some laborers very early in the day. They work through the, the, the heat of the day. And he continues to hire laborers. He gets towards the end of the day and he hires some laborers. And they only work for a very brief amount of time. And they get paid the same as the other laborers. And the ones that work the, the brunt of the day complain. And the owner of the vineyard in verse 13, he replies to one of them and says, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. When we envy another Christian, we are begrudging the generosity of God. He has the freedom to do what he wants with what is his. And everything we have in life has been given to us by God. And so we cannot look at another Christian and say that God should have given me what he has given them. To do so is to begrudge God's generosity and to woefully misunderstand the idea, the doctrine that God is sovereign and owns all things. To envy another Christian is to refuse to count others more significant than yourself. It is to fail to rejoice with those who rejoice. And to envy another Christian is to fail to love your brother or sister in Christ. Love, the Apostle Paul says, does not envy. 
Furthermore, obedience to God and growth and holiness should be more important to us than our circumstances. So if our circumstances give us the opportunity to grow in holiness by loving our brethren, by rejoicing with them and not envying them, then we have been truly blessed. And we ought to count that a greater blessing than anything that we could have desired that God didn't give us. If we hate sin, as we ought, we will spurn and loathe the idea of envy, especially envying those for whom we are to have the greatest bonds of love for, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not envy one another. So let us not envy the wicked, and let us not envy one another. But there is another category I want us to consider briefly here, and that is the wicked envying the righteous. In Psalm 112, you want to turn there, I think the last place we turn to, in Psalm 112, the psalmist speaks of the man, you could apply it to a woman as well, who fears the Lord, in verse 1, and greatly delights in God's commandments. Now, this psalm speaks of the blessings that God often does bestow on the righteous, even in this life, including his offspring being mighty in the land, verse 2. And verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house. So passages like this remind us that God often does bless with temporal blessings those who walk in his ways. It says, it is well for the man, verse 5, who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affair with justice. The righteous man, the righteous woman is described as one who, in verse 8, their heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So after describing all these blessings bestowed on the righteous person, the psalm ends with the response of the wicked in verse 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Now of this passage, Matthew Henry said that the happiness of the saints is the envy of the wicked, and that envy is the rottenness of their bones. And there should be, there should be in our lives a degree of the, of the reality that could cause this reaction from the wicked. There should be a degree of it. If we are not happier or more content in this life than the wicked, than those apart from Christ, then we're not rightly considering the blessings that we have in Christ. The Apostle Paul had more joy, more happiness, more contentment than Emperor Nero, who had all the pleasures of this world at his disposal. So a Christian should have a degree of happiness and contentment that the wicked can only look at and desire. A gospel-centered family will no doubt experience many blessings in this life, not necessarily wealth and riches, that the house of the wicked will not know. The Bible says that the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And so this should be a reality in our life, not that we desire to, to boast about what we have and the wicked do not. No, but that we have a contentment in Christ and a happiness that you just simply cannot have outside of Christ. However, this envy that's spoken of in Psalm 112 will be fully realized in the next stage. Henry goes on and says that, This envy will be accomplished fully in the other world when it shall make damned sinners gnash their teeth to see Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, to see all the prophets in the kingdom of God 
and themselves thrust out. In many ways, sin is its own punishment, and the rottenness of the bones, the despair of the soul, and the discontentment of spirit that are the result of envy will accompany the wicked in hell forever. And so if you are here and you have not turned to Christ, I would plead with you to turn now from the wrath to come. Only in Christ can you be truly free from the sin of envy, both its power over you and the consequent judgment that this sin and all sins will bring on those that are outside of Christ. Christ died for the sin of envy. He died to free us from its power and to free us from the punishment that we justly deserve for begrudging God's generosity. So briefly now, as we wrap up two points of application. Number one, as we consider the sin of envy, it is a very particular sin to the individual. Envy in us reveals much about us. Diverse are the things which can pull at our affections. For one person, someone having a nice car would tempt them to envy. For another person, that would be meaningless. To another, outward beauty will tempt tempt them to envy. For yet another, both of these things are meaningless, but something else will tempt them to envy. You will know what you are tempted. You will know your temptation to envy when you hear, see, or think about someone having or getting something, and your initial response is not joy and happiness for that person, but rather an uneasiness of spirit or a discontent in your heart. That is how you will know where you are tempted to envy. I know what it is for me, and it's surely more than one thing, but it's probably different for you. But I trust that if we examine ourselves and our affections, a practice which the Puritans encouraged and has been lost in our day, if you do that, you will readily find those things which your heart may be inordinately desiring. They may not be bad things. They may be good things that we want. But our affections and thoughts and our response to other people getting those things when we don't must be brought into obedience to Christ so that we may put to death the evil, wicked, vile, and destructive sin of envy. A tranquil heart content in God's providence is healing to the flesh and will bring great blessing to us. Last point of application is this, the doctrine of God's providence. One of the greatest doctrines that you can ponder as a child of God is the doctrine of divine providence. I encourage you to get a copy of the 1689 Confession of Faith or the Westminster Confession and read through chapter 5 on divine providence. Every line in that chapter is pure gold, bested only by Scripture itself. But there's one line in the confession that I want us to think about and dwell upon. It says this, Whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. Listen to that again. Whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. When we envy, we are demonstrating discontent and disbelief in the providence of God we are doubting that God is in fact in control and all that happens is in fact for his glory and not just for his glory, but for our good. Can you trust that whatever that thing is in your mind, whatever brings the ugly cankerworm of envy out in your heart, can you trust that God is withholding that from you for your own good? The more you learn of God from his word and his kind dealings with you, the more prone you should be to defer to his providence 
and trust that your lot, whatever it may be, is by his appointment and for his glory and your good. The doctrine of divine providence used to be spoken about much by our spiritual forefathers. Divine providence was even used to refer to God himself. We don't use that language that much anymore. Webster, in defining providence, said, A belief in divine providence is a source of great consolation to good men. It brings you great peace and comfort and contentment. There is nothing which will bring about a tranquil heart more than a robust, tested, and firm belief in divine providence. And there's nothing which will lead to more rampant destruction caused by envy than a failure to believe and trust in divine providence. Envy is an insidious and strange sin. It makes another man's virtue your vice and another man's happiness your torment. It's very strange. It is, in essence, to complain to God that he didn't make the world better for you or worse for someone else. It consumes our hearts from the inside out and prevents us from loving neighbor, especially our Christian brethren, as we ought. If we are not about the business of killing the sin of envy, we can be sure the sin of envy will be about the business of killing us. But thanks be to God that through the gospel we can be forgiven for this sin, and by the power of the Spirit we can mortify the sin of envy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your warnings that you give us in your word against sin in general, and even in particular, you've warned us of the dangers of so many sins. We thank you for your warnings about the sin of envy. We thank you for the opportunity we have to consider this sin, as painful as that may be in our own hearts, that we might mortify it, that we might put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we Though sinners as we are can be forgiven, can be made righteous in your sight, can be indwelt by your spirit and empowered to overcome sin and grow in obedience more and more in this life. And though we won't be perfect until glory, we can put to death sin in increasing measure. We can rid ourselves of envy each day by the power of your spirit. We can grow in our contentment and trust in you. I thank you, Lord, for your word to us. I thank you for our visitors today. I pray you would bless them wherever they go, that you would, your face would shine upon them, that you would give them strength, that your word would be a comfort, that the doctrine of divine providence would be a consolation to all of us here as we seek to obey you and live out our faith in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.